0: Hey, how
1: you doing? I've been having fun this morning. I crept into our traditions service at 8.30 this morning, wonderful group that meet across the hall and stood up and greeted them and announced that I was going to sing a solo with 84 verses. You should have seen the fear that hit that entire group. It was a beautiful thing to see. We are continuing this Going Rogue Series, it's all about villains in the Bible and lessons, life lessons that we can learn from them. And this weekend, we're thinking about Saul, who became Paul. Everyone says Saul, Saul. <laughs> it just doesn't sound right on you people, you know. <laughs> Saul, who became Paul. It's the challenging thing about living in America, you people talk with your mouths open. We British people, we just mumble and people think it's classy. How deluded are they? So, before I read, I wonder if you've ever been in a really angry crowd. Like, it felt threatening. The, the one that came immediately to my mind was going to a CUCSU football game. <laughs> that got pretty angry. But more significantly, some years ago, I was uh, in India with Compassion International, a children's charity, Uh, I serve as an ambassador for Compassion, we were shooting a film, and we stopped with the film crew in a village, and a crowd began to gather. And, you know, one of the tragedies um, of the two-thirds world is that often, white people with a camera spells exploitation. And the villagers, frankly, thought that we were there to exploit their children. The crowd grew and grew and grew, And uh, I'm filming away, uh, talking to the camera, and suddenly the guy directing the crew, who understood the local language, he said, we are getting out of here right now. I said, I'm nearly done. He said, we're going now. And we hopped in the van. He had heard the mutterings and the threats of people who frankly had misunderstood our intentions. Nothing happened, but it was a scary moment. Paul, Saul, is at church. He's in the Jerusalem temple area. And a crowd begins to gather and it turns into a lynch mob. And, and Dr. Luke describes them as running in all directions. And then he says, remarkably, the whole city was in uproar. And they are beating Paul and they are trying to kill him. And he requests an opportunity to address the crowd. What a what a terrifying moment. And this is what he says, Acts 22. Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Last weekend, Kay and I were In Oklahoma, near Chickasha, Oklahoma, you didn't need to know that detail, but I just wanted to say it. It sounds kind of cool. And uh, speaking at a great church there, uh, wonderful people. Confusing food, frankly. (laughs) I I, I mean, if it exists, fry it. (laughs) Chicken fried chicken. What's that about? It's. And, and, uh, and, and grits, grits. How many, how many people like grits? Whoa! <laughs> come forward right now for healing, people. <laughs> uh, and, and great hospitality. Y'all come back now. It, it was great, a wonderful weekend. But at the end of the weekend, we're heading back into the hotel. And uh, I just noticed that Kay stepped over a scorpion Wearing open-toed sandals. Now, just for clarification, the scorpion wasn't wearing open-toed <laughs> sandals. That would have been really weird. But Kay was, and she didn't notice. And I saw this thing, and I saw the, I saw the stinger come up. And, I, and, and so I screamed a scream, heard in Pluto. <laughs> I, I want you to have in your mind this picture of threat and aggression and the stinger. This is the story of a scorpion-like man, Saul. Some of the language that Dr. Luke uses in the book of Acts to describe him, it's, it's very graphic. In Acts chapter 8, it's said of him that he is destroying the church. The word it also appears in Hebrew in Psalm 80. It describes wild beasts who are ravaging a vineyard wreaking havoc and destruction. Dr. Luke wants us to know that Saul was not just a naughty boy. He was bad. He was a rogue. And this was not just a one off bout of rage. Look at Acts 9 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. In Acts 26, in his own language, Saul says that he was. Obsessed with a raging fury. And he went to great lengths, literally, to wreak havoc upon the church, the Christians. He went to a foreign country, to Syria. Damascus, from Jerusalem, is 150 miles. Now, for Saul, the next available bus was... 2,000 years away. What that means is he most likely had to walk for two weeks. He's carrying extradition papers that he wants to execute so he can drag Christians back to Jerusalem. It's a horrifying story, but it's also a story loaded with hope. The story says anyone can change. Anyone. Let me show you a photograph. I've talked about this guy before. This is Graham Seed. He's from the north of England. You might notice some markings on his face. That comes from the razor fights that they had when he led a group of football hooligans. He used to meet in pubs to arrange the fights with knives and chains. He was a gangster. He was a professional debt collector. He'd knock on your door if you hadn't paid the loan shark, then you'd deal with him. He was homeless. He lived on a park bench for three years. and while he was on living in the park, some guys from Youth with a Mission came by, and they told him about Jesus, and he kind of told them to go away. <laughs> in slightly different words. And they did. He got really sick, got taken into the hospital put on life support, and they decided nothing could be done. They needed his mother's consent to sign the form to turn off the machine. They tracked her down. She signed the form, and then the youth with the mission guys showed up. And they said, before you switch the machine off, could we pray? And mom said, sure, why not? So they prayed, and he woke up. And two or three weeks later, he became a Christian. Kind of rude to wait two or three weeks, isn't it? And this is Graham today with his family. He is one of the sweetest men. He's about six foot eight. He's got muscles in places where I don't have places. <laughs> and we were doing a book tour together, we were staying at this horrible hotel. I like to call it the Hotel California. You can check in any you want, but you can never leave. When we checked in, the guy said, do you want an upgrade for 10 pounds? I said, what do we get for an upgrade? He said, a window. It was horrible. Crunchy carpet. <sighs> and, and a parking ticket on our car because we parked the car in the wrong place. We come out the hotel, we're feeling miserable, fed up. We'd see a parking ticket on the windshield wiper. Oh, Hosanna, we said. <laughs> we go into a pizza place and we sit down and we order pizza. We didn't say grace. We weren't in a grace mood. We didn't sing a hymn over the pizza, Nothing. The end of the meal, the server came to us. She said, what are you guys doing now? I said, we've got an event in town here. She said, is it, is it about God? And I thought, how does she know? I'm, I'm not wearing any lapel pins and it's, it's winter, so I'm not, I'm not even wearing my Christian sandals. There's no way. <laughs> I said, how do you know? She said, well, you guys were kind to me. I thought it's probably got something to do with God got nothing to do with me a six foot eight of muscle intimidating looking guy just being beautifully kind his life has been transformed so this is a story of horror it's also a story of hope let's dive in if you're following in the bulletin the first thing here the first thing is a current heartache a current heartache persecution around the world there's a danger when we read about Saul the persecutor that we think that persecution is simply historic for the church. It is very current. Earlier this year, excuse me, last year I was at a conference. A lady was there from North Korea. Hei Wu is her name, not her real name. We heard and opened doors, the organization that reaches out on behalf of and to the persecuted church currently North Korea is ranked as being the number one most dangerous place in the world to live if you're a Christian there are 50,000 Christians in prison camps for no other reason than that they are followers of Jesus they are living on a diet of a handful of rotten corn each day they are dying like flies And forgive me for being so gross, but here's the news. As we rightly are grateful that we live free lives, that does not absolve us from the responsibility of looking around a broken world, where for so many, that's not true. It's kind of gross, but it's reported that often the prisoners will pick their way through cow manure, looking for shells of corn in the manure for some kind of nutrition. A few weeks from now, Kay and I will be in a nation in Asia. I'm deliberately, this, week, this today, not naming that nation. And we are free to go there. But we have to be very careful what we say in that congregation of 2,000 because a lot of times government agents show up. And if you are from a particular ethnicity, and you convert to Christ, you may have your children taken away, and you will probably be taken to a reprogramming camp to beat that Christianity out of you. Persecution is a current reality. But rather than bombarding you with statistics, we are, we are privileged to have veteran missionaries, Doug and Ruth Clark, as part of our Timberline Congregation. You'll often see Doug... Up on platform, playing guitar very well. This week, earlier, earlier this week, I sat down with Doug and asked him about the persecuted church.
0: Doug, you and Ruth uh, pastored
1: and led mission teams for 24 years in areas like Morocco, Pakistan, Afghanistan. These are areas where more believers are persecuted than
0: anywhere else in the world. How bad can it be? In Baghdad, our lead pastor was thrown into prison by Saddam Hussein, into the red prison, the worst of them all. People said you only came out of there one of two ways, in a pine box or in a straitjacket. But people around the world prayed, and when American troops surrounded the city and began to march in, Saddam Hussein threw open the doors of the prisons and the mental hospitals where all the torture had taken place, and Pastor Jules walked home a free man. He and his family are still ministering in Baghdad today because Christians around the world prayed. Doug, obviously the intention of the persecutors is to wipe out the witness of
1: the church, but does persecution always do that to a national church? No,
0: it doesn't. One of our Muslim convert pastors in Iran was also thrown into prison. The church leaders visited him and said, we're working to get you out of here. And Pastor Mehdi Debaj said, don't do that. I'm winning more people inside than I ever won when I was outside. The church in Iran today has over 100,000 Muslims who have given their lives to Jesus Christ and are serving him every day. When God's people pray, believers are strengthened and the church grows even in the face of persecution. That kind of bravery from that pastor is obviously humbling
1: and inspiring, but. Our challenge, surely, is that we can be preoccupied. We say, well,
0: we've got enough challenges here in America. Why should we pray for people who are halfway around the world? The short answer is Jesus is cheering us on when we do that. He says, when I was in prison, you visited me. We may not be able to travel halfway around the world to visit our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison or who are, in, who are suffering in other ways, but our prayers reach them and encourage them. So we can pray, but we need to take um, action as well, perhaps through
1: trustworthy organizations who are advocating, who are getting alongside the persecuted church to help. How how can you help us with recommendations? Ruth and I
0: will be in the mall here at Timberline. uh, Right after the service, we have a, a handout with the names of four great organizations and their web addresses where you can get all the information that you need on the persecuted church. And if anyone has a question, we'll be happy to answer it if we can.
1: Thanks so much, Doug. And for those at Windsor, that information is also available for you as well so do me a favor and just turn around and look look to the back there, the back doors and you're not you're not straining back there to see, craning your neck to see if there's a soldiers back there or police in our ability to worship God freely, let's pray for the persecuted church let's Get information, advocacy. Secondly, this story shows us the news we all need. The news we all need. With Jesus, change is not just possible, it's inevitable. It's not just possible, it's inevitable. We often talk about Saul's conversion, and it was a conversion, but let me remind you that he was not embracing a new religion, but rather the fulfillment of his religion. He was realizing that he was doing things in completely the wrong way in persecuting the Christians, but he was also bumping into his Messiah. As a Jew, this was the fulfillment of his Judaism. Every year I stand at the Western Wall in Jerusalem and I write my prayer on a piece of paper and put it in the wall and I feel a sense of exhilaration and sadness. I see Jewish friends there, as close as they can get to what used to be the holy of holies. Men on this side, women on that side, separated by a barrier. And I want to say, don't you know that Messiah has come? And that in him there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The barriers have come down. Saul experienced this incredible change his story says we can change. Here's a question. Where have we surrendered to sameness? Where have we said, "It's just the way I am? Nothing to be done. That is a contradiction in terms. And it is a contradiction because Christianity is not just a morality code that we are we are commanded to live up to, it's not that. Rather, it's an invitation to experience the daily empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He brings that transformation as we cooperate. Where have we surrendered to sameness? Number three. Number three, a new life begins. A new life begins. There are goads, a light, and a voice. Look at what Saul says in Acts 26. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now what's that about? A goad, we talk about goading people, it was a sharp stick that you would control oxen with. You'd, you'd, you'd point the stick in the direction of the oxen and if he had any sense he'd go the way that you wanted him to go it was a common phrase in the agricultural community it was a common phrase in Greek literature this idea that to to kick against the goads was defying the will of the gods and so Jesus borrows that phrase in his revelation to Saul what makes what is clear from this when Jesus talks about the goads is that Jesus had been working in Saul's life before the light ever flashed. Before the voice ever spoke. I wonder what that looks like. We're not told. Was it... Did Saul occasionally wake up in the middle of the night sweating because he remembered Stephen's martyrdom? He was there giving approval to that execution. Did he ever... Remember the faces of children who saw him drag their parents away to be incarcerated or worse the goads had been at work here's another question how's God been working to get our attention what's he been doing whispering and notice this as well Saul saw the light, so did his companions. He heard the voice, so did they, but only he understood what the voice was saying. Now, let's be clear, the voice was speaking directly to Saul, but I I wanted to speak to this for a moment because there are some people who go through life and they kind of see a glimpse of the light. They even have a sense of the goads, But it never goes beyond this idea that, well, yeah, okay, maybe there's some vague, impersonal God out there. The God of our era is impersonal and distant. May the force be with you. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, when you're feeling fit and the sun is shining and you do not want to believe that the whole universe is a mere, mere mechanical dance of atoms, it is nice to be able to think of this great mechanical force rolling on through the centuries and carrying you on its crest. If, on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, the life force, being only a blind force with no morals and no mind, will never interfere with you like that troublesome God we learned about when we were children. The life force is a sort of tame God. You can switch it on when you want, but it won't bother you. All the thrills of religion and none of its cost. Is the life force the greatest achievement of wishful thinking the world has yet seen? Is it, is it time to respond? I, I grew up in... I grew up in Britain and I always thought I was a Christian. Why? Because I was British. British people were Christians. What a ludicrous idea. And I believed in this great, nebulous, impersonal something. And then the day came, because that didn't do anything for my life. I was the, as a teenager, I was the first person drunk at every party. I met up with a reuni- for a reunion with some of my friends in London recently. They said, we can't believe that you're a pastor. I said, there's some people in Colorado who share the same conviction. Yes. My life was changed, not by some vague force, but by Jesus. Is it time to respond to him? Number four, the most important question of life The most important question in all of life. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? I want to make this statement. For me, belief in a personal creator makes complete sense. Sometimes Christians are made to feel intimidated like they're, they're, they're believing something crazy. A friend of mine did a radio interview with a leading atheist. And the atheist was somewhat mocking. He said, you Christians, you're crazy. He said, you believe in something made out of nothing. My friend said, well, if you think that's crazy, you atheists believe that nothing made something out of nothing. (laughs) Believing that it just all came together is like believing that a print shop explosion could produce a dictionary. Or a tornado passing through a salvage yard of scrap metal could just sort of produce a fully functioning car. And if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Uh, A philosopher back in the UK recently said, the resurrection of Jesus is unimportant. And Professor John Lennox, who was debating him, said, excuse me, if death has been historically beaten, I want to hear about it. A question most important question in life who are you
0: if he is who he is
1: that changes everything and then number five the question that leads to our true purpose what should i do the question that leads to our true purpose gordon dial said we tend to worship our work work at our play and play at our worship our relationships disintegrate faster than we can keep them in repair, and our lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot. We're distracted. We're techno distracted. I got distracted this morning. You Facebookers know about this. I got a notice from Facebook to say um, my account's been hacked, and and uh, and I've got to deal with it. And I think the I think the notice is a hacking. Can I just say to any Facebookers who follow me on Facebook, I'm never going to ask you for money or tell you that I'm stranded in a far-flung country i have lost my passport and need your help. If you get that, it's not me. But I'm distracted so often, and so are we. But here's the big question. What should I do? It goes beyond some kind of Vague theoretical deal, interesting conversations about God. Yeah, but so what? Again, C.S. Lewis says, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Suppose we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. what should I do Lord when I became a Christian back in 1840 I was completely <laughs> paranoid about knowing the will of God I, oh, I said it to a friend how do I know the will of God they said it's probably what you don't want to do that was really helpful <laughs> I wanted to marry Kay my wife I wanted to marry her I thought I can't marry her I want to marry her I got to marry someone really ugly some of you looking at me thinking she believed that doctrine too, didn't she? It's very rude of you. I read every book about how to know the will of God, having first prayed about which book it was the will of God for me to read about the will of God. Here's what I discover: I discover that availability is the key. I love the story of Isaiah. He's having a, a crisis, and God sends an angel with a barbecue coal to burn his face. Very helpful. And then Isaiah is just standing there and it's just God, the angels and Isaiah and God's got a task he wants fulfilled. So he drops, God drops a cosmic hint. Who will go? Not in a British accent, but you get my drift. Who who shall I send? And Isaiah, it's only Isaiah there. And he says, ooh. Didn't actually say, ooh. Here I am, Lord. Send me availability is the key. What would you have me do, Lord? Well, the last thing is this. Number six, good news about our deepest shame. Good news about our deepest shame. I used to think that the Apostle Paul got over his history. Like, you know, he, he gave us a third of the New Testament. He, he knew all about grace. But the more I've studied his writings, the more I wonder whether there were moments when he remembered and regretted and even felt smothered by shame. Listen to what he says in Acts 26. I put many of the Lord's people in prison And they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities, referring to that Damascus trip. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He refers to himself in the same letter as the first and chiefest of sinners. I wonder if we still struggle with shame. Someone has said shame is a very heavy feeling. It's a feeling we don't measure up. Maybe we'll never measure up. The feeling when we're conscious of it gives us a vague disgust with ourselves, which in turn feels like a hunk of lead on our hearts. Martin Luther said, most Christians have enough religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy life in the Spirit. What a tragedy that we, as followers of the Liberator, should live shame preoccupied lives. I love this, this writing, I'm going to conclude with this from Robert Farrah Capon. He's talking about grace. If you find yourself frequently addicted to shame, may you find this helpful. He says, grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bash, shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its cessations to every window pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears grace let's bring our shame to this Jesus let's pray We've huddled around your word, Lord, and now we come. We come first not to pray for ourselves, but we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world once again who today gather in shadows and for whom fear is an everyday experience. For those incarcerated in North Korea, not only do we pray for them and for their strength, but we pray for We pray for the overturning of oppressive, evil dictatorship that strikes your people. You are the Damascus Road, Jesus. Do it again. For those of us, Lord, who are making this personal today, moving beyond the force to the risen Jesus, reveal yourself want to pause in this prayer and say right now in this moment you can turn your life over to him and say to him Jesus what would you have me do I want to follow you and as we just wait in prayer for a moment or two longer can I invite you just to open your hands in front of you all of us it's an invitation not a command an attitude of saying Jesus once again I'm available. What would you have me to do? Even this week? And perhaps in the open hand sits shame. And we bring that to Him too. Would you be the lifter of our heads and hearts that we might be able to come again to the cross? that you might deliver us from the shrouds of shame. So we give you thanks. Finally, Lord, we pray for those prodigals who are out there on the road. They're on the Damascus road. They're on the wrong road, but you can bump into them on the wrong road. The Emmaus too, who were heading away from Jerusalem, they're on the wrong road. And as soon as they met you, they turned around and went back to the city. They're on the wrong road, but you met them we whisper a prayer for those that we love who are on the wrong road but we are hopeful and heartened because you Jesus can bump into them on the road so do it we pray do it we pray in Jesus name everyone said
0: everyone said